All right, so I'm, I'm going to be, uh, at least for the next couple of minutes, looking for Byron Smith to walk through the back door like my knight in shining armor because he's bringing something for me. All right, so got to love it when I forget stuff at the hub. Honestly, today, the first time ever we're on a Sunday morning, I'm so engrossed in what I'm doing because I go in early, down at the hub, working on stuff, and literally I look at my watch and it says like 9.45, right? And, and I'm like... No, it's not. You know, it's like 8.45. I really am thinking I'm fine, right? And then I realized, like, that's the real deal. So I rushed up here completely unprepared, and Byron's going to save me. So it's going to be great. And actually, it's stuff for you. He's going to pass something out for you. You're going to need that. So not so much what I need to focus on right now, but it will lead into things in just a second. So uh, what we've been doing now for the last four weeks, today will be the fifth week, is we've been looking at essential church. And the way we've done this is we've said we're going to look at this series in the book of Titus, but also it doubles as the opportunity for anybody who desires to, to become a member here at Redemption Church. And so the last five weeks, including today, has functioned as the membership class, right? And so what Byron's going to bring for us in a couple of minutes is this sheet, and we'll just send it down the row so as it starts to come when he gets here, don't be like, dude, what are you handing me? Uh, you'll know. You'll know it's a sheet that if you want to be a member, all you need to do is uh, read over this sheet, fill out the things that are on it. It'll ask for your testimony uh, on the backside. It'll ask for you to describe the gospel and that kind of thing. And so this is just something we're putting before you. We're not telling you you must become a member. You have to become a member. But we certainly do see that there is a blessing and a benefit to membership. And so this is the way that you're going to be able to do that. So you can fill that out this week at home. You have as many weeks as you want to fill that out. You'll see the requirements are on the sheet as far as the things from the last uh, five weeks. So you can go about all of that at your leisure. Now, in the last five weeks... We have looked at a number of things. We have looked at the essential order of the church. We have looked at the essential elders of the church. We have looked at the essential unity of the church. We have looked at the essential doctrine of the church. But today we look at defense, all right? What it means to have a position that cares enough about the church to ensure that it's healthy, that it's unified, that it's defended, right? And this is an important point all the way around. As much as we go, yes, we love the doctrine of grace. We love what grace does. It's such an inspiring thing, this idea of grace. At the same time, we know that there are those who will undermine that grace. We know there are those who will undermine unity who will undermine direction. It's just sort of the problem, the challenge, and the life of the church. And so as much as the church is offensive, and by offensive we mean it goes out into the world, it's an unstoppable force, it brings the gospel, we live as missional theologians, we put points on the board for Jesus. As much as the church is offensive, there is also a calling for the church to play defense. Because there is a will that sets himself against the advancement of the church. There is a will that sets himself against the promotion of the gospel of grace. See, the thing that is true in this world, you may think Satan's just an idea, just a concept of evil, just the personification of badness. But in reality, he's conscious, he's real, he's driven, he hates Jesus, and he hates Jesus' people. And so he will try everything he can do to burden us, to bench us, 
to just simply take us and put us into this kind of corner of ineffectiveness because we're too busy fighting ourselves or whatever. He loves that stuff. He loves Christian-on-Christian smackdown. He loves that stuff. So he will do whatever he can to make sure that the gospel doesn't get out. So he sets himself against the church. And this comes in two basic forms. The first form, uh, we all know, uh, it is persecution. And, and, And we read about persecution. We read about China. We see persecution. We read about Africa. We see that. If you've ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, you're reading about persecution. Persecution is typically an external act, right? It's those who don't confess faith in Christ pressing on those who do. Trying to shut down the message, shut down the church, whatever it is, they just, they persecute. But see, that's not the variation that we face mostly in the United States. We don't simply suffer from persecutors or persecution. More often than not, in American churches, we suffer from punks, all right? We do. We suffer from people that are just being punkish. They claim Christ, they claim to be in the family, they claim to get the gospel, they claim to get Jesus, and then they get into churches and they act like punks. In fact, Paul warns the elders of Ephesus about this in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. I see that you're getting sheets right now too. You can just hold on to those, by the way. If you start filling them out now, it doesn't do us any good because you're not going to get the last message. All right, so... Take them home, that'll be great. So, in Acts 20, 28 to 30, Paul says this to the elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, which means even elders have to be aware of the dangers of punkishness. Alright? Elders must be aware of that. That's why we believe in a plurality of elders. No one guy is in charge. We don't have a hierarchical headship because elders hold elders accountable, right? We believe in that. So, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which you obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, Paul says, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and... From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Outsiders will come in. Insiders will rise up. That is the danger that exists in church contexts. Right? So so we have to be aware of that. We have to be wise to that. As we're looking at essential church, it's essential to protect unity and to protect doctrine by being aware of these dangers. Now, the trick in this is that outsiders are usually easy to spot, right? I mean, it's like if you're talking about another religious system or some other kind of fringe ideology, we go, no, 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 we're not that, we're not them, not the same team, not even the same game, all right? We can do that easy. But when it's internal, those are tougher to spot because they speak Christianese and they seem to look okay at first and uh, they're kind of your buddy or whatever. And then it gets a little nutty, especially, and I'm going to tell you something that I think a lot of you know, but the church attracts by nature some interesting people. All right. Yeah. yeah, What one guy clapping? I'm here. All right. So, um, no, it does. It totally attracts interesting people. For example, one thing that the church, I don't know why, it's just magnetism for wingnuts. I don't know why, 
I really don't know why, but, you know, like, I'll do something on a Sunday, and then I'll have somebody come up to me, and they're like, oh, pastor, that was so good, and they're new, right, they're new, they come up to me, they're oh, pastor, that was so good, you know what you should preach on next Sunday? No, tell me. And they'll say, you really should preach on the one world order from the book of Revelation. Did you know that Barack Obama's name spells 666? You know, like that guy. You know, and so they'll go, you should really do that. And I'll look at them and go, you really should go to Adventure Church. They would love to have you as a member. Because I figure Randy can handle them, you know what I mean? He's like, he'll just, you know, I'll be it. So uh, I'm a pacifist in comparison to Randy up there at Adventure. So, uh, you know, Adventure, you should, you should do that. But, but wing nuts, right? There's going to at times be wing nuts, nuts and you, you have to be aware of that in the church because, again, they just slide in. Another thing the church seems to attract is drama. Drama. And, and you know, that doesn't even like, you know, dramatic people are looking for a church to be dramatic in. It just seems at times drama creeps up in churches and drama gets out of control. And then pretty soon you've got like one mother with another mother, your daughter diss my daughter at youth group. And now I'm going to take revenge at prayer group on you. You know, that stuff. So you got you have to kind of deal with the drama factor that comes into some of this. You also have sometimes people that are these, uh, armchair theologians that know more than everybody else. You know, and they come in and they try to make sure that they're there to correct everything in every way. As a matter of fact, years ago, I remember uh, the first church I was a lead pastor and I preached some message on on God's grace and calling people to himself. And I had a guy come up to me afterwards. And he goes, no, you, you missed that whole thing. You need to read Burkhoff's work on infracellarianism grace and its effectual calling. I need to read Burkhoff's work on infrasubflapsarian grace, we could say it, and effectual call. Dude, you need to read Chicken Soup for the Soul. Is what you, you know, it's like, you, you need to just, a little, you know, because nobody's reading Burkhoff here hardly, all right? So, much less infrasubflarianism. It's just not going to happen, you know what I mean? Not really. So, but you get those types that kind of slide in and do things. You know, or, or even, I think, sometimes you just have the misguided overzealots that come in. If you're not reading the King James only, you're going to hell, you know? Uh, I can't even speak King James, much less read it. So, you know, it's just that stuff. And many other flavors, right, that we know exist within the context of the church that need to cause us to go, okay, as much as we want to advance, there are times where we must defend and be clear. And I think a lot of that is really birthed out of the things that a church holds most sacred. So for us at Redemption Church, as we're treating this as a membership class, uh, the first thing that we are committed to is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. And when we say that, we're talking about this book right here. No additives, no preservatives, all right? Just this book. We are loyal to this book. This book drives us. This book is God's word. Anything else it could be good, helpful, useful, nice, pleasant, whatever. But it's not revelation. Right? So we are very cautious about the fact that we're saying we labor to make sure that sound doctrine flows from the Bible and anything else is clearly delineated as human stuff. And when we look in Titus, we want to be cautious as we look at human stuff. Another thing we are committed to is sound elders. 
If we have sound doctrine, we want sound elders. It's why in the process here, if anybody feels led to being an elder, the first thing is they must feel led. The second thing is they must come and say, I want to be vetted. They must go through one year of discovery, interviews, training, researching, writing. I mean, a lot to ensure that they are solid. And we're going to see why in just a few minutes here in Titus. And so we want to make sure they're sound elders. And then we want to make sure as a church we have sound DNA. And by that we mean we know who we are and and why we do what we do. We're missional theologians. We're committed to reaching a lost culture where that culture is at. We understand who we are, and then we understand from that who we're not. We don't try to be everything for everybody in every way, in every context, for every culture, but we know we're placed in this culture at this time to promote the gospel of grace as God has called us to. So all of these things are important as we go. That is the sound stuff we need to care about, and it's important because of what we see in Titus. So if you have a Bible, if you have an app, whatever you use, you can go to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Now, starting in verse 5, Paul tells Titus, I've left you on Crete so that you can set the church in order and establish elders in every city as I have commanded you. So, Uh, One church, many elders working in plurality to promote the gospel and defend the gospel. That's what they're supposed to do. And then he gives a list of the qualities of elders, right? And they have to be all these different things. And he rounds it out in verse 9, saying that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Why? This is why it's important. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate. Why do we need well-trained, qualified leadership? So that when there is those who try to do something different, those elders can come in to encourage, to correct, to work with, work through, whatever uh, the issue that may be at hand. And that's the concern that Paul has on the island of Crete. He sees what's going on, and he goes, no, 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 man, Titus, you've you got to make sure you, you get to every city and with every church, get elders in there that know what they're doing. Because there's going to be others who don't, don't know what they're doing, but it's going to bring danger and recklessness to the church. And see, the thing that is true is that this is what Satan loves to do. All right, Satan loves to do this. Like I said, the church is a magnet to all sorts of personalities. And here's the thing he doesn't often do. You rarely see it except in uh, kind of bold exceptions, which are usually cults. Uh, but rarely does he rise up this one gravitational leader and then from that just bring all kinds of cultiness to it. I mean, it happens, and we see those things. But that's, you know, out of the nearly 700,000 churches in the United States, most of them are not suffering under division because of cult leaders. What Satan loves to do is he loves to pepper in just few individuals here or there or whatever that are going to kind of bring this to the table in different ways. All right? So it's like a giant bowl of lime jelly bellies. Right? That's the church. We're all a bunch of lime jelly bellies. But if there's anything you know about jelly bellies is they make those really mean, funky flavors. Like booger. All right? Right? You ever had booger jelly belly? Tastes like a booger. Um, looks just like a lime one. Tastes like a booger. And if you're going, how do you know? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, I assume salty. All right? Um, 
But he just drops those in, right? And you, you don't know that in among the lime jelly bellies are booger jelly bellies, right? But that's how it works in the church sometimes. And so our job as a people is to go, well, who are the boogers, right? How, how do I identify the boogers? And how do I make sure that I don't get too close to a booger jelly belly? Because I'm a lime jelly belly, right? So how do you do that? Right? You go, oh, man, you're going to remember this booger thing for a long time. I'll tell you what. So, how do we do this? Well, this is what Paul's mission is now in Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, and then also we'll get to chapter 3, 9 through 11. We're going to look at those today and see how he calls some of this out. And as he calls out these disgraceful teachers, I want you to keep in mind that that's what they are, dissers of grace. They are dissing grace. They don't like grace. They don't get grace. They don't want to own grace. They don't understand the implications of grace. So they are dissing grace at its core, right? We talked about this last week, why grace is so potent and powerful. But there are different ways that you can disgrace. I call this the rubric of rock, paper, and scissors, all right? These are the three different ways that grace can be dissed, and they have different elements and flavors and ideas behind them. The first is rock, all right? And I've got rock here. This is how grace is dissed. It's rock when it's this idea of rigidity, right? This idea of rock isn't necessarily to say uh, that it's wrong, but it's an attitude behind it. It's like, on the solid rock I stand. Pretty good, aren't I? Um, Pretty much so I can throw it at you. I mean, but that, you know, that's why I stand on the rock, right? Uh, it's this idea of cold orthodoxy, where I love truth, and you should too, because you don't get truth. And I don't know if you've run into these people. I, I, I have a history, uh, not only of running with some of them, but at a time being one of them, right? And, and, and here's the hard part. Again, like I said, it's not that... They lack an understanding of truth, but they lack the heart at times behind the truth, right? So they're like, we need meat, but they usually serve it up frozen, right? Right? I mean, that's what happens. It's like, here's a poi protein drink. Enjoy, you know? And it's like, okay, it's protein, it's meat, but boy, this is not nourishing what the soul should really be nourished with, which is, again, making us soft and pliable in the hands of God to mold us and shape us whatever else. In fact, sometimes this becomes so uh, reckless in the quest for truth on the rock of truth that it's like an arrow. It's straight but deadly. Right? And, 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 and again, that happens at times in churches. Now again, I love truth. We as a church love truth. We want good doctrine with right hearts. And, and that's always my fear. The more that we emphasize doctrine as a church, the more we're saying, hey, plug into praxis, read your Bible in a year, make sure you know good theology. The risk is being like rocks, rigid, and not showing grace. Preaching grace, fighting for grace, maybe even being graceless while defending a doctrine of grace. We, we don't want to do that. We won't, don't want to be rocks. But that's sometimes what creeps up in churches. And so Paul's saying we need those qualified to make sure that there isn't this idea of disgrace by rigid belief. Not wrong, just rigid, cold, calloused, frozen orthodoxy. 
On the extreme other end of things, it's kind of like a pyramid. They all kind of stand apart. They sound similar at times. You have paper. Paper orthodoxy here is extra orthodoxy. In other words, God gave us a Bible, and that Bible has a lot of pages and a lot of ink is spilled on those pages, but he didn't give us enough. So we need some more paper, and we need to add to what God has given. And so uh, we're going to grab our pencil, and we're going to look around, and we're going to add to the Bible anything we need to that God just didn't cover for us. Right? I, I remember seeing this vividly portrayed when I was watching one of the Harry Potters with my kids, where this this new person comes into Hogwarts and they're going to really take over and there was this big, beautiful wall by a door and there was no laws on it and by halfway through the movie, there's all these laws hung all over the wall to correct all the students at Hogwarts which is just that thing, and so what we do even as Christians, we go, the Bible's not sufficient we need more things, and so we grab our paper and our pencil and we say the pastor shall Watch Harry Potter. Right? Isn't that what we do? Right? It's witchcraft. Law one. Seven billion more to go. All right, so. But that's what we do. Right? You know, and again, you know, some of these things we could argue the merits of what is healthy versus not healthy or prudent, not prudent. But it's the idea that we say, no, no, we, we need to add to. It's, it's paperism as opposed to rockism. And so we try to win with paper. The other team, they try to win with rock. And so this is just adding through. And it's funny because Jesus warns us in the book of Revelation. He's like, man, don't add to my book, bro. Because I have like a mouth that has a sword in it. You don't want to mess with that, you know. My eyes burn like fire. In a street fight, you lose to the guy like that, you know. So, um, don't add to it. But then you have the other clan. It's not rock. It's not paper. You have scissors. And they have reckless belief. In other words, instead of going extra orthodoxy, they just go unorthodox. So they grab their scissors. And they grab their Bible, right? And they go, oh, man, alive, you know. Uh, there's some stuff in here that it just doesn't work for me. Right? So, I, oh, because we're not married, but she's hot. All right, so I'll just, I'll just take that out. <laughs> and uh, what else? Well, th- that guy wronged me, and I'm going to get revenge. So I'll just take out how I handle that. All right? Scissors. Just scissor doctrine, scissor theology. If it doesn't work, I get rid of it. And so all these three traits are just what happens, right? And, and, and so as churches that are trying to be sound in doctrine, trying to make sure we're, we're keeping unity and that kind of deal, we need to watch out for all three, right? Rock, paper, scissors. Not let any of those disrupt unity. Not let any of those hold sway and take over. Now of these three, the one that Paul is dealing with in Crete the same that Timothy was dealing with in Ephesus, where were what was basically the paperism, right? Paper beats. That that was the, the fundamental problem. That was the thing that's being dealt with. That's what you see as we continue on. He says there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially, or in Greek it can translate, that is, those of the circumcision party. 
The circumcision party were the Judaizers. So they roll in, they believe in Christ. Understand this. They're not outsiders as far as they deny Christ, deny the cross, deny the gospel in the most overt sense. They go, no, we believe in Jesus, and Jesus wants you to do all this other stuff. And so they're rolling in as the circumcision party. Again, I love the title. And, you know, they're, they're, they're just imposing. In fact, in Timothy's context, when you read 1 Timothy 4, the way they imposed was really simple. They said, you want to be a godly, good Christian that follows Jesus? Don't get married because it leads to sex. No, truth. That's exactly what they're saying. Oh, you know, if you want to be truly a good Christian, you not need to stay pure, which means don't even get married because if you're married, then you'll be tempted to actually, you know, like, be married. So, don't. And don't eat this kind of food and don't drink this kind of drink and all these extra rules. And Paul, you know what he calls that? Doctrines of demons. See, somebody could look at that and go, whoa, whoa, they were just trying to be extra ethical, extra moral, extra good. Yes, doctrines of demons. Satan loves it when we add to God's book by saying, be extra moral, extra good, extra works. Because it undermines grace. It undermines the cross. And so, man, you know, these guys are going to roll in and they're going to say, hey, you need to do more. You need to be more. And it's going to sound really good. In fact, this struck me. I was watching a couple of weeks ago. Uh, did anybody see that Ken Burns special on Prohibition? Anybody watch that? Just a few of you? Man, good stuff. Six hours, yes. Um, and six hours of Prohibition. All right, so that make me stop drinking after that. So um, anyway, no, it was it was brilliant because what you see on the scene is, uh, again, kind of the religious majority at the time kind of coming to the defense of the idea of prohibition and that it becomes the reigning rule and law of being a good Christian, a good person. You're more American. You're more righteous. You're more holy. You're more biblical if you support prohibition. And, and of course, it sounds good. We're saying no. No must be good. No is godly. If you just say no to everything, you're more godly. The bigger the no, the bigger the Jesus guy, right? I mean, that's the attitude at times. And, and, and so there's this mentality behind that that Paul's having to deal with. Is there going to just, just, just say no to everything? And yet, while it sounds moral and right and religious and ethical... Again, like I said, it goes against grace, and it goes against the gospel, and it goes against Jesus, and Paul knows it. And so when it comes to rock, paper, scissors, when Paul wants to play the game, you know what Paul brings? He brings a gun, all right? He brings a gun. So he plays with one of these guys, and they go, hey, I've got paper. And he goes, good, i got a gun, I win. You know, because he knows what he's dealing with. It's not just rock, it's not just paper, it's not just scissors, it's the gospel at stake. It's the truth of the work of Jesus at stake, and so he is not playing around. So he says, there are many who are insubordinate, right? They're empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. He says, they must be silenced. I couldn't bring a gun or I would have. All right, so... um, Public school. All right, so. But you're like, oh, I get that. Yeah, that's good he didn't. All right, so. um, We'd be finishing the sermon down at the police station. So, uh, don't want that. But I let, they must be, it's like, it's just like this De Niro mentality. They have to be silent. You know, I mean, just silent. 
because there's a real danger in play there. I mean, it's no small thing, right? I mean, listen to what he goes on to say, right? He says they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. They're upsetting whole families. So you have a husband and a wife. They're going to be in disagreement because uh, the, the wife's looking at the husband saying, you know what, we need to go this much further on this doctrinal thing to be pleasing to God. Or a, a son to his parents where he's going to say, but I, I'm free now in this. I can, I can actually have ham at Christmas. And then, no, you can't. Whatever the thing is, it's disrupting marriages. It's disrupting parent-child relationships. It's disrupting the church. I say, here's a new rule, a new rule, a new rule, a new rule, and you're not godly unless you do our rule. Right? So they just keep creating these applications. In fact, how are they doing this? It says in verse 11c, by teaching, and we're going to go into verse 14, by teaching what they ought not to teach. By teaching what they ought not, what isn't helpful, what is destructive, what is adding to what God has said and therefore taking away of grace. They ought not teach it. He says they're devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. People are awesome at creating commands. Awesome at it. We're all really good at it. Think about it. If you're a parent, you are the ultimate rule creator. You can create law faster than anybody. Kids are fighting. If you don't stop that, you know what's going to happen. La, 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 la. Right? Like a gallon gun. Right? You know, consequence law, consequence law, consequence law, consequence law. When your dad gets home, more law. You know, bam. We are awesome at that. When somebody wrongs us and we start processing in our head, a lot of the processing is, oh, if I, you know, and it's, it's actually just a bunch of laws that we create against them if we could. I mean, it, our flesh creates law very easily. We are law-creating factories, no problem. We just are. And a lot of it is the laws are designed to establish further morality, to set the broken order straight. Right? So it's always well-intended, always. But it divides families, it divides homes, it divides friendships, it divides whatever. Now, there's a time and a place to divide. We talked about it last week when orthodoxy is at stake, things like that. There's a time to divide. But there's other things like this, where this is wrong division. This is, this is improper. This is unhealthy. But people create laws and try to hold other people to them. And become the problem. In fact, I thought about it over the last 20 years of being a pastor. Some of the things that get created in churches that I've been a part of. Uh, one that was early, early on was movies and movie ratings. Right? So, uh, were movies okay? I was pretty much of the generation that said movies were okay. Some of you come out of the generation where movies are not okay. But I was in the generation, movies are okay, but when I got involved in church and things started going down, it was like, but certain ratings were not okay. And you were more godly if you didn't do certain ratings of movies, except Passion of the Christ, it's okay to do that. Um, yeah, the one rated R movie all good Christians can do. All right, so, um, but that became the standard of religious requirement. You know, are, are, are you godly? Well, you don't do this if you're truly godly. Another one that we probably all see is political affiliation. Uh, you're more of a faithful Christian if you affiliate one way over another way. You know, it's just a thing we sort of tuck in and add, right? We don't always mean to, but we do. Uh, oddly enough, food or alcohol consumption. This is one we've talked about before, but uh, not just so much maybe in here, even food. But you go talk to your Adventist friends, they have different views on food than, than you. 
right? So these are things that can come in and divide. And I, I, I've been in churches where there'll be some people that say, hey, if you're doing anything with preservatives or additives or hormones, you know what, that's just not, you're not honoring the temple of the Holy Spirit, you know? And they do that with that condescending little Holy Spirit voice. You're just not honoring the Holy Spirit, you know? Yeah, go away. All right, so give me my 20 deep. All right, so, but, but, but I've seen that. One of my favorites has been education preferences. You homeschool. There's really good parents homeschool. No, if you love lost people, you public school. No, 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 if you really want to educate your child, you private school. And there's this, like, hierarchy of who's better, right? We mock each other, you know, like, the public schoolers look at the homeschoolers. They're just weird. True, all right? But, um, I'll give you that one. We're a homeschooling family. All right, so, um, you know, but the homeschoolers look at the public schoolers and go, oh, wow, you know, just send them to the atheists. You know, I mean, it's like, you know. And then everybody kind of looks at the private schoolers as snobs, you know. So, um, yeah. Oh, you get a forward private school, right? So, uh, but that kind of stuff. And, and so just kind of this gets imposed, right? Uh, I, I was in a church where we had an issue for a while that was, uh, uh, you're really godly if you let God plan your family, no birth control. Right? And the no birth controllers were going toward the birth controllers saying, oh, you know what? You, you don't have to. You just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It was always like, I'm just saying if you really want to trust God. You know what I mean? I'm like, well, if you really want to trust God, go roll your car without your seatbelt on while you're at it. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, you can take that to any number of places. Don't lock your doors at night and everything. You know. But it was like that. And so the people that said, well, I don't feel led that way were meant to feel like they weren't trusting God enough. I remember another one was dating versus courtship. This was like really big for a while where it was like, um, well, if you're really godly, you court. So I start talking to people that were courting. I'm like, so what do you guys do when you court? And they kind of explain. I'm like, oh, you're dating. You know, that's all you're doing. You're just dating. You're just dating with an intent, you know. But, but that became kind of a dividing line. Or uh, even parenting methods. You know, well, what method do you use for parenting? Do you spank or do you not spank? And all, just all that stuff. And all of this, oddly enough, I, I, I think is in the spirit of what Paul has to deal with. Where we take these things and we, we elevate them. To like, you're godly or if, all these other things. And, and Paul says, man, you're, you're missing it, you're losing it. That will divide homes, that creates grief, it creates anxiety. And more than anything else, you're just trying to get people to obey your rules because you don't think God's rules are sufficient enough. You just don't think they're sufficient enough. Now, we can all hold uh, ideas and beliefs and convictions on all the things we just talked about. That's fine. As soon as we start to impose them on everybody else, that's the problem. I'm not saying you don't have opinions or convictions on things for you, but as soon as we go, hey, this is for everybody, or you're more godly if, nope, that's a problem. Why are the disgracers doing this in this situation with Paul and Titus on Crete? First of all, they doubt transforming grace. They just doubt transforming grace. They, they see grace as a tool of forgiveness, like we talked about last week. They see it as the cleansing of the exit sketch of one's life. You're clean. Now you manage it. Right? As opposed to, you're clean and Jesus manages it. So they, they go, oh, but you know, no, 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 it doesn't transform. It, it, it saves, it forgives, but it doesn't transform. The thing that they don't understand, that grace brings conversion, not just confession. 
it actually changes the person. Grace isn't just an idea that says, oh, get out of jail free card, but you're no different inside. No, it says, get out of jail free card, you are radically different inside. Old heart out, new heart in, old nature dead, new nature alive. You are a new person. The old is gone, the new has come. You're converted. You're not just forgiven like it's this dominus ominous off my lawn. You know, it's not, it's not just like that. Right? Like one Catholic's going, I get that. All right, so, um, it's not like that. But, but they don't get that. They're thinking of just pardons. They don't realize it also powers. And that's what we saw in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. The grace of God has come, teaching, teaching us to say no, to live yes, and to be zealous in that. That's what grace does. We don't do that. Grace does that. Right? So grace powers. It doesn't just pardon. And this is what they don't understand, because again, they're looking at law. Law seeks control. Law seeks control. Grace shapes conscience. Law will not shape conscience. It can constrict conscience. It can be applied to conscience in in unhelpful ways. And then conscience can revolt against that. But the conscience can only be shaped, genuinely shaped into godliness and good works by grace. In fact, this is what Paul is so concerned about, because he wants people to live in a grace that says, I want to obey, not simply this legalism that says, I have to, because everybody says these things. In fact, he says, this isn't even the gospel at all. This is a very dangerous concept, because it's not really going to change you. It says in Colossians chapter 2, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? He says, why? You're in Christ. Why do you keep submitting to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. This is secularism. It's secularism bathed in the notion of Jesus. But it's not Jesus, it's secularism. He says, these things indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Why? Because you can't clean the conscience from the outside in. You can't simply conform to the externals and have the internals rewritten. That's Paul's big beef, his big fight, his big issue. It doesn't work. More laws won't fix it. Just won't. Here, you know this to be true. Do you think the way to, to solve any, whatever you think they are, whatever gun problems we have in our country, do you think the best way to solve it is to add another law to the books? Right? You go, well, we have, what, what roughly 25,000? That's working great for us. Tax season's coming up soon. Do you think the way to create a better tax system is to add more to the tax code? No. It breeds insanity. Right? It breeds crazy. Why? Because more laws don't really fix the problem. An internal change, that fixes the problem. Grace fixes the problem. They don't get this, but they doubt transforming grace. That's the first problem of the disgracers. The second thing, Paul says, they seek gain over grace. They teach for shameful gain, he says in verse 11b. 
shameful gain can be any number of things. It can be for popularity, for people, for possessions, for power, or for pull. It doesn't matter. In fact, often, possessions is the lowest thing on the list. Most of the time when you deal with people in churches that do this stuff, they're wanting pull, they're wanting power, they're wanting people. More than they're wanting, like, to be on the payroll. So, he says, they're doing it for all sorts of gain that's for them. It's shameful about their ego and about their control and about their power, whatever else. He says it's shameful, but that's why they're doing it. The third thing he says about these disgracers is that they are religious Jabba the Huts. I love this, verse 12. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's awesome. This is Paul and his gun. He's quoting Epimenides, who actually was a hometown kid, looks at his own people and says, yeah, that's where I came from. They're slugs. Right? And so Paul says, you know, when Epimenides said that, uh, I've been to Crete, it's true. That's what he says. That's what he says to these teachers. Now, here's the thing about Paul, and this is so interesting. This is this, uh, like I said, taking out the gun and firing. I want you to listen to the, to the from verse 10 to verse 16, and they go to chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. Here are the words Paul uses to describe these people. He says, they are deniers, detestable, disobedient, defiled, divisive, deceptive, warped, sinful, self-condemned, shameful, empty talkers, insubordinate, lying, evil, lazy gluttons. Alec Baldwin goes, man, that's a lot of names. You know, I mean, um, in such a small span. You know, like, like I, I think we can look at this and Paul is not kidding around. He's just not joking about this. He says, this is a big deal. But he doesn't do this out of frustration. He's not just like, oh, I'm going to get you. Uh, he's not doing that. There's a reason behind it. It's a calculated decision, which is why we should rebuke them. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. He says, not devoting themselves to the myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. See, he says, rebuke them sharply. That word in the original language means like a sword or an axe that cuts something open. He says, split that stuff open, expose the internals of what it is, show that it disregards grace and it disregards the cross, and it's all about law and not about God, and it adds to God's word, and it doesn't live in the sufficiency of the word. Cut that open and show what it is. Show what it is. So that they will be sound in faith. It is remedial. It is actually more of a scalpel, but it's, boy, it's with some barbs in it. Because he wants them to get back to what matters, right? In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, you can see Paul's passion when it comes to the gospel and not being overturned by new rules and laws. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's actually another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. He says, that person can go to hell. Well, I'm not making that up. That, that's how serious he sees it. That kind of thing sends people to hell. Let those types of people then go to hell. Paul is strong, strong, strong with his words here because he wants to make sure we don't give it to the human temptation and tension to augment the gospel. 
with other stuff. He says, just, just don't do that. Don't go down that road. It's dangerous. You need to believe that Jesus is sufficient, that the good news is sufficient, that the Word is sufficient, that the Holy Spirit is sufficient, that grace will transform people. You have to believe that first and foremost. That is the gospel truth, and that's what he gets to. What is the gospel truth? Verse 15a, to the pure, all things are pure. Why is it that to the pure, all things are pure? Because Jesus has made them pure from the inside out, right? Takes out the old heart, puts in the new heart. Takes out the old nature, puts in the new nature. That's why they're pure. They're pure in Him. And because they're pure in Him, that purity begins to come out. New heart, new fruit. That's the idea. But he says, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're working from the outside in. There is no new heart, so there's not going to be new fruit. There is an old heart with new laws that make works. That's it. Old heart, new laws that just makes works. Usually self-righteous works that are just imposed on others and make them feel overwhelmed. He says you can't be cleaned by that. You cannot be cleaned by being a moral person. That's part of the thing we say when people go, Wait, I'm a good person, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. And the issue is, but, but you can't be a good person to clean yourself up. It's like saying, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to take a bath to get clean. Great, what kind of bath? Mud bath. Taking a mud bath, but it's a bath. But it's mud. But it's a bath. It's mud. It's mud. It's still law. You can't get clean with it. Law won't clean. Law condemns. Law shows your muddy, murky need something, which is grace. But law can't clean. So they are defiled. Right? Both in mind and conscience. In other words, their internal is not changed just because they conform to an external. And so Paul says, man, they are, they are not good. So the question is then, how do you catch a counterfeit? Right? Because that's the problem. Counterfeits are coming in and dealing with things. How do you catch a counterfeit? Well, Paul kind of give, gives a police artist sketch to some of this. Verse 16. Says, Starting off, they profess to know God. They profess to know God. In fact, not only they profess to know God, they profess to know God better than you. Right? So uh, they are closer to God. They get God more. They have clairvoyant understanding. God has told them X. They come across as a little bit better than you. They come across as more pure than you, more holy than you, more godly than you. They are proud. They are titled. They're those things, and therefore they profess to know God. And they're, they're letting you know. They, they know God well. He says, but they deny him by their works. Like, I know him. Have you ever met him? Sure. You don't seem to act like him. Whatever. I have a lot of rules, though. Is that good enough? No. He says they are morally detestable to God, theological disobedient against God, and ministerially unfit for God and for any good work. See, a good work is a work driven by grace. Anything else is just a work. They have lots of works. They push works. But they don't have good works because they're not driven by God's good grace. See, grace has to drive good works. Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. It says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Man, the reason for grace is so God can couple us to things he's already designed for us to do before we were even here. 
And when that grace comes in and it transforms the heart and it ignites the person, good works come out. But without that purity of grace, again, like I said, it's just works. And as I was thinking about this this week, I'm like, okay, how do you really catch a counterfeit? Here, here's something that, that I, I've learned over the course of time and I could finally articulate this week. Um, and that was in some ways circumstantial. So, kind of the false. Uh, what you'll see in the false is that the false, they act godly. They act godly. But the true react godly. The false act godly, the true react godly. It is very easy for anybody to act godly because they're in control of the game at the time. Right? So they can come across as pious and they can have their tone a certain way and they can come across as whatever, humble or knowledgeable or caring, whatever. The real test is when they get punched in the face and how they react. What their response is. If the response is grace, if the response is love, if the response is forgiveness, if the response is non-retaliatory, if the response is whatever, that means you've got the right thing. But if they act pious but react ungodly, you tag them. Right? You tag them. That's the difference. If there's any encouragement I can ever give, it's that. The way you will know is not how they act, but how they react. Measure reaction. Measure reaction. And it will tell you something every single time. If it's vindictive, if I'll get you, I'll settle this, they tag you. So, act versus react. Quick sidebar. Discerning sound from Satan. Three things that you want to ask yourself as you're trying to understand when you're reading a book or listening to somebody online or you're reading articles on the internet or in magazines or whatever. You're trying to discern. How do you discern sound from Satan? First of all, what is the origin? And when I say, what is the origin? Is the origin divine or human? Is it revelation or is it tradition? Is it, oh, here's the Bible in play. Or is it here somebody else's stuff in play? Right? So what's the origin? Second, what is the essence? Is the essence about inward and spiritual? Or is the essence outward and ritual? What is the essence? And then third, what is the result? Is the result looking for a transformed life? Or is the result looking for creedal compliance? Those are the three things that you really only have to care about, right? Origin, essence, result. If it's divine revelation with a spiritual essence for a transformed life, man, that's good. That's good. That's the way it should go. But in Paul's situation with Titus here in Crete, that's not what's going on. That's not the workflow. And so because of that, I want you to jump into chapter 3. We're going to round out really fast here. Chapter 3, because of all of this in chapter 1, and then promoting grace in chapter 2, and into chapter 3, uh, Paul says, in grace and for grace, you need to silence disgrace. Silence disgrace. Right? Remember in, in verses uh, 4 to 7 in chapter 3, we looked at it last week, he kind of gave these doctrines of grace that God stepped in, and God did this, and God did that, and this is all of God's grace. And so he gets into verse 8, and he says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these sayings so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. But then he goes to the extreme opposite. He says, but avoid or shun. Turn your back on, he says, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
He says, grace is excellent and profitable, and it creates good works. But this stuff is unprofitable and worthless. Why? First of all, it's foolish controversies. It's literally, he says, stupid talk. Don't give in to stupid talk. Don't be a part of stupid talk. Don't create stupid talk. It's stupid talk. Okay? Next, he says, don't give in to genealogies. Genealogies are basically just all the little cool secret messages that were hidden in genealogies that the Jews believed in. You know, and, and I remember like years ago, I had a friend of mine that really got into that. He goes, you know, I've been looking up all the genealogies in the Bible of genealogies attended. Did you know there's a secret message that points to the gospel in every one of those genealogies? I'm like, did you know I have a magic eight ball that I can shake too and I can get the answer to life on? You know, I'm like, clever problem. All right, same thing. He says, don't give in to dissensions or strife or pay attention to them. And then especially quarrels about the law. Galatians 3.24 says the law was a tutor to Christ. These guys are quoting from first I say so's 127, which is the law is still our ruler in Christ. He says, just don't give in to this. In fact, he goes even further. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. He says, three strikes and you're out. That's it. You warn them. You've got to stop doing that. I'm not going to stop. I'm warning you again. You've got to stop doing it. I'm not going to stop. Third time. We've warned you. We've warned you. The third time is, you've got to go. You're being ostracized. You're causing problems. You're causing division. That isn't comfortable. I get that, but it's love. It's protection calling because those people, he says, are turned inside out. That's literally what he means by warped. He says they're sinful and that they're hypocritical because they say they're holy and, holy and loving while they are rejecting gospel and grace. And he says from that they're self-condemned because, again, they're rejecting the gospel of grace or their laws. So what does this mean for us as a church? I close with this. What it means for Redemption Church is that we, we defend Jesus against religion. We defend grace against moralism. We defend fruits against works. We defend delight against demand. We defend zealous for doing good against fear of doing bad. We defend want to against have to. We defend inspiring love over requiring loyalty. We defend scripture over tradition. We defend inward to outward transformation over outward to inward confirmation and creation. Ultimately, we defend the gospel of the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. We come before you as your church to worship you now, to commune with you in communion, to give to you uh, in ways that all are designed to point to your all-sufficiency in our life. We love you and praise you in your name.